0: Welcome to the Smart Talk series, a Henry George School of Social Science podcast. The Smart Talk series is a weekly podcast with an array of discussions held with academics, policymakers, practitioners, and other professionals to explore new ideas and theories within the economics field. Our discussion today came from our archives again and was recorded in November of 2014. Our talk is hosted by our former president, Andrew Mazzoni, and Dr. Giannis Varoufakis, Dr. Varoufakis is a Greek economist and politician who attained his Ph.D. in economics from the University of Essex in the United Kingdom. Dr. Varoufakis is the founder and secretary general of the European Realistic Disobedience Front, a progressive leftward party which is part of the Democracy in Europe movement 2025. He served as Greek finance minister in 2015 and is a current member of the Greek parliament. We were lucky enough to talk with Dr. Varoufakis about his critique of Capital in the 21st Century by Thomas Piketty, why mainstream economics ignores inequality, and how Piketty's solution to poverty falls short. We hope you enjoy this talk, and please make sure to check back on our page every week for a brand new episode.
1: Giannis, thanks for coming back and joining us on Smart Talk. I invited you back because I just recently read your critique on Piketty. And it's going against the mainstream critiques, although there have been a number of critiques, but I felt it was solid, sound, made sense, and it's a little counterintuitive to the current critiques that are being given. I mean, it's true that his book is a sensation. It caught the zeitgeist of the times. He's confirmed something we all know. We're shocked to find out that there's inequality in this world. And he's done a tremendous uh, uh, job of documenting it. And so we give him that. There's no no, no complaints here. But you bring up a number of points that I think are are crucial and serious. You're concerned about the long-term implications of his book and the presentation of it. And I think if I could sum, sum up number one, he's essentially using a, a broken neoclassical model to try to explain his results, number one. And number two, he's, he's, he's saying essentially that capitalism has some inexorable uh, outcomes, but he doesn't explain why. And in effect, he says the only good times are some, somehow accidental and exogenous. And essentially, if that's, that's true, what can we do to control our own fate? Now his, his solution is taxing wealth. And at the beginning, this is a problem, especially for George's because his conflation of uh, wealth and capital for us is very serious and obviously it's very serious for you. Your comments.
2: Yes, that's quite right. Um, Piketty tells a story which is important, it needs to be told, and which, as you put it, um, everybody knows. But that doesn't mean that it shouldn't be told again and again. Um, That hideous inequality has been on the rise, um, especially after 2008, has um, become a a shared fact by all of us. It was uh, the Occupy Movement, after all, in the center of New York, that um, made it clear to everyone that this kind of inequality was intolerable. And what was interesting was that, you know, the rest of American society and, 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 and in the West more generally saw the Occupy Movement with a great degree of sympathy. So, Piggy is taking the Occupy Movement's message and making it mainstream. What is... More particularly what Piketty is doing is that he's not just making it mainstream, but he's bringing it into um, the established mainstream of the economics profession. If you think about the, 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 the time of the Occupy movement, there was this complete disconnect between what most Americans thought and what the economists practiced. So if you were a student of economics at Harvard um, or, you know, some community college, doesn't matter where you were, and you had your finger on the pulse of uh, daily events, you would get this feeling that there is something profoundly wrong with our economy and society, that inequality is becoming unbearable, that even the powers that be, you know, Obama won on a ticket that was promoting a diminution restraining this uh, abysmal inequality. And yet, you would go into your lecture theater, you would go into a seminar room with a professor, you'd read a textbook of economics, and there would be none of it there. Inequality was a non-issue. It just didn't feature at all.
1: Well, it can't happen in a neoclassical model. It can't happen.
2: It, it's impossible to have inequality in a neoclassical model. Because in a neoclassical model, we're all utilitarians, we all have utilities, and my utility cannot be compared to yours. So it is impossible to say that you have more utility than me, because the first assumption that economics students have learned to make is that your utility cannot be compared to mine. So inequality has been banned as a concept from economics. So what Piketty is doing, which is very interesting and, and potentially useful, one might have thought, is he brings, uh, given his Harvard background, and the fact that you know, his best mates are in MIT, are in Harvard, amongst the economists. He brings the concept of inequality in. He makes a case that inequality should not be um, acceptable, that its dynamic is toxic, and it's poisoning capitalism and democracy. So that, 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 is, you know, that, that is all well and good. And also, he frames it in such a way that the economics profession, at, last, at least the liberally minded professors of economics, with kudos in the profession, people like Joe Stiglitz, Paul Krugman, um, can embrace it and can say, see, our profession can have something useful to say about inequality. So inequality has become admitted, was admitted to the Academy, the Economics Academy for the very first time through Piketty's book and therefore one may be excused to believe, to trust that this will now mean that inequality is going to be tackled by the professional economists.
1: First of all, this book was essentially descriptive, and his theoretical explanation for it, I mean, especially if you go back to the capital controversies, just can't hold water. So how can, how can...
2: Of course, and that's part of my critique, too, as you know. But, But nevertheless, he does have a theoretical part. So he's got the empirics. And he's got a theoretical part which is completely consistent with the neoclassical textbook. This is what, he ma- what makes him the darling of the economics profession. It, you see, he gives the economics profession, the neoclassical economic profession, the mainstream, he, give, he gives them um, an opportunity uh, to, to become humanized, to show that, you know, that what they do in the end bears upon the great problem of inequality. My great fear is that the as reflecting in an important sense what you just said that the particular theoretical construct that he uses to do it in the end is one of the greatest enemies anyone who is interested pragmatically in egalitarianism.
1: Eventually they're going to pull this apart. This is a model that, that is not ex- uh, explanatory and like you said yourself he didn't need to do that. He could have gone just to observe the propensity of saving of wealthy people and basically created essentially uh, a logical explanation
2: he, look logical explanations are all important because let's say that that, that that you and I observe a particular empirical pattern well someone can turn around and say yes, but this is you know this, there is nothing endemic about this pattern in capitalism that you know it, it, it was a confluence of uh, factors that led to that, things could have been different. Capitalism could work, could function differently. So it's important to have a logical explanation, a theoretical, analytical explanation as to why the inequality that we're observing is not a result of just bad people making decisions. It's not just a question of, you know, the bankers having been allowed to get away with murder, which they have, uh, but that there is something endemic in our capitalism which gives rise to that. There's nothing wrong with doing that. The problem I have is that his theoretical construct comprises three so-called economic laws, as he presents them, of which the first one, as I say, the first law of Piketty's is a tautology, so it's not a law, it's like saying five equals five, that's not a theory. The second law is based on an assumption which can never hold in reality. And the third is trivial. So the logical construct construct that he's presenting us is not a way to to convince um, high-minded people that inequality is uh, an essential component of the capitalist machinery. No, it is a way of bathing himself in analytical glory and ingratiating himself with the economics mainstream, but doing it in a way, as you put it, that leaves him him and anyone who adopts his uh, mantra wide open to devastating critique.
1: It's poor neoclassical economics at best. I mean, how, how he can make his edifice stand on that? Or even, it's, it's not even a fig leaf if you think about it. I mean, it's really, he might as well have dispensed with that. Why didn't he?
2: Well, because he wanted to write a book that would very simply without having any serious theory, depict capitalism as a machine generating inequality, then to have empirical evidence that this is what has been happening, and then to have to effectively to have the monopoly of the truth about inequality, and to say, okay, I've given you a theoretical Explanation as to why this is happening. I've proven that it has it has been happening. So I'm the Isaac Newton of inequality, and all you now have to do is uh, follow me to the you know down the path that leads us to a simple conclusion as to what needs to be happen to be happening. Remember, social theorists are power crazed people, right? All of us.
1: Well, look what he's 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 recommending at the end of this whole thing. Yes. He recommends a wealth tax. Does he mean a, 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 on wealth? Does he mean it on capital? Does he mean it on both? Does he mean to split it? Does he? I mean, how does he implement it? Where does he implement it? I mean, the the conclusion is 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 so anticlimactic, and the theory is so weak that he'd have been better off just pointing out the statistics and leaving it that. And you're and basically what you're saying is, but you wouldn't have
2: sold the book then. The book, you, you and I will not be discussing the book then. So it's also a marketing strategy, right?
1: Well, I think, I think he could have, I don't think, very, first of all, according to Amazon, the average reader is only reading up to page 12 of the book. Okay, They buy it. They buy it, okay. Buy Number two, no one's <laughs> reading his theory. They're all getting the fact that there's inequality for 200 years, and this fellow dug the records out of the monasteries, the tax, the tax uh, agencies of various countries. And he's, he's obviously intellectually honest in that sense. And so the figures stand for them, themselves. But what generative mechanism has he demonstrated?
2: Uh, but, 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 but hang on a second. You have to see things from a slightly theological perspective here. Now, remember, uh, most believers... Christians, Muslims, Jews, whatever, um, they don't understand the minutia of uh, the theology of their religion, right? This is the, only the-, the theological scholars spend a whole lifetime concerning themselves with that. You know, even even, even the, the, the least accomplished believer, when they kneel down and pray, they like to know that there are these theologians who have the theory. They don't understand the theory themselves, the believers, but they, 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 it's important to them that they they assume that some theologian has worked out the theology. They don't want to read it; it's too complicated, and you know, it's too Byzantine. Right. <laughs> Similarly, believers in Piketty's, uh, you know, the followers of Piketty, the people who actually buy the book, have heard that you know, several chapters in there have the theoretical component, which is the equivalent to deep theology, they don't want to read it because, firstly, they don't understand it, and secondly, they're not bothered with it. But it, it is important to them that that theoretical component is there. So to understand the discursive power of Piketty, you've got to appreciate the role that this theoretical part plays in giving discursive authority and value to the whole enterprise. Now, you and I can delve into this theoretical component and find holes everywhere.
1: Well, Krugman said, he said this was a great book that was written. I mean, Krugman, of all theorists, should know better about theory. Now,
2: Paul Krugman is uh, a colleague, an an academic economist of uh, substance and and someone who has made a huge contribution. Especially during the years of the Bush administration, when he used his New York Times column single handedly to confront a great deal of um, falsities and toxic economic views and policies. So, this is my preface for saying effectively that I have a great deal of admiration for, for Paul Krugman, his contribution to public debate so far, except that I do not value tremendously his theoretical, his own theoretical perspective. If you look at the way he understands the world, Paul Krugman that is, and he, 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 he makes a point of repeating that. So this is not an allegation. This is simply repeating what Paul Krugman himself says very often. He has a, 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 a perspective from which he sees the world that it is a single sector economy model. Think about it. Everything he talks about is couched in terms of the ISLM model that undergraduates learn in Macroeconomics 101. Now, I'm not going to go into this in any particular way, except, say, except to say that it is a single commodity universe. It is as if the macroeconomy produces only one good, and that one good is produced by one capital good. So, in fact, it's, it's, actually, it's the same commodity, and capital good. So it's like a corn model. Like, you know, Ricardo, David Ricardo's,
1: Ricardo's model, sure.
2: Um, theory in which you are asked to imagine of a very simple world in which there's only one commodity, it's corn, and corn can be eaten, so it's a consumption good, or it can be invested. You save it to use it as seeds in order to plow the land next year, and that's a capital good. And in that kind of world, which finds its way into Paul Krugman's analysis since he's stuck with this ISLM model, which is a one commodity world model. In that world, um, returns to capital are not difficult, uh, you know, difficult to, to envisage. So you know, if you have only corn, you know what the returns to corn are. If you save, if you save um, a fistful of, of corn seeds, you know how much corn you will get out of it when you plow you you know, we cultivate the land with
1: it. Don't need money.
2: There's no money in this economy. There's no money in any of these economic models. Economic models are not capable of handling money. Money is too complicated a concept. It, it, to, to put it simply, if you introduce money into any of these models, those models explode. So they become indeterminate. In other words, anything goes. Any, any price, any quantity is possible in these models. So it's like, you know, having a meteorological model that can predict that tomorrow you may have uh, hail, shine, rain, or, um, you know, um, drizzle. It's, it's a useless model. If you can predict that anything is possible, it's not predicting anything. So money cannot be handled by these models. So the fact that Paul Krugman liked Piketty's analysis is not a great surprise to me, because in the end, their neoclassical background um, is, is, is a common one, is a shared one. Now, the difference between Krugman and, and Piketty is that Krugman is a sincere man and a thoroughly progressive political economist. So, he uses his ISL, ISLM simplistic model in order to, to say and do good things. So when, he the Bush, yeah, so, when he talks about the Eurozone, when he talks about uh, you know, the, 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 Wall Street, when he talks about the trickle-down effect... In spite of his simplistic modeling, he says some excellent things and very useful interventions that he makes in the political arena. My concern about Professor Piketty is that he's much shiftier and far less interested in changing the world in important ways than Paul Krugman is. What they do share in common is an oversimplified view of capitalism, in effect. A view which is inconsistent with really existing capitalism.
1: Yes. And of course, what policy prescriptions can you really take from Piketty's analysis in real life? What policy? You can't take any if you think about well,
2: it. Well, this is an excellent question. And let me answer it this way. His theoretical model is constructed so as to assume away the most. That is bargaining. So, you know, when you accept a job or you're being interviewed for a job or you're doing a job, um, you have a certain bargaining power which will determine the terms and conditions of your employment concepts. Once you start working with an employer and you're producing value for the employer, then it's a question, it's like a a tug of war between you and the employer.
1: Not in in Piketty's formulation, there is no bargaining power.
2: There's no bargaining. None, none, whatsoever. It's uh, like, like, I call it the matrix economy. If you remember the the, the movie, Matrix, where the machines produced everything. Okay, there's no bargaining Mm. between the machines. They're all cogs in a bigger machine. So that, and that is not capitalism. Capitalism is a realm of continual bargaining and power games. Power games between buyers and sellers between suppliers and companies, between governments, between departments of governments, between men and women at at other houses who's who's going to take the garbage out. Our society is based on bargaining. Now markets play a role in mediating this bargaining and sometimes doing away with it when you accept the price as given. But you can't understand capitalism if you assume that all prices are God-given and everybody simply sits back and takes them. Uh, And this is what Piketty's uh, model does. It assumes that prices are given, that the, 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 there is some kind of divine mechanism that determines them, and everybody else accepts them, and these prices simply follow his mathematical schema. All right. So, it is like saying, I'm going to create a model of the world where capitalism doesn't exist. And I'm going to use this in order to give you prescriptions as to what people should do within capitalism, which is absurd.
1: Well, Now, what he says here, let me, let me just interject right there. So if we go to a policy prescription, which he does, he immediately jumps to, I'll tax wealth, basically not disaggregating it, and assuming that wealth is is part of a production function that's determinant, which it can't be. And so it hangs out there, and it's even unexplainable why wealth, if he looked at it, is so much bigger than capital these days, especially after 2008. All of a sudden there's no Capital is not being built, but wealth is being built, at least on paper, to a tremendous degree. So his prescription is we're going to tax this wealth, which essentially is becoming monetary and uh, almost not anchored to reality. And we essentially are in a situation where everything is indeterminate now. And so everyone's congratulating themselves about having made this big discovery. This discovery leads us to absolutely nowhere.
2: This is entirely so, but look, you have just put your finger on uh, the reason as to why Piketty has enjoyed such great discussion success, because everything you've said makes no sense in the context of his own analysis.
1: He comes out with essentially a weak wealth tax and an undefined wealth, and certainly implicit in his model and his presentation, such thing as government regulations are interfering in constructing, let's say, Rooseveltian reforms are really off the table with his model. That being the case, what have we got here?
2: What we have is an amazing piece of discursive power, propaganda in a sense. Because to begin with, the theoretical part of the work conflates wealth with capital. There's no difference between capital and wealth. Why? Because he wants to be able to measure it. Now, as you all know, we can't measure capital. It's like love. It's very important. It exists like beauty, right? I mean, anyone who denies the concept of beauty is a very sad person. Nevertheless, anyone who tries to measure it is, uh, is going to destroy beauty and love uh, and certainly never know it. So this is a problem with capital. Um, we can't measure capital. I mean, we could if we lived in a single commodity world where we only had corn, then we would measure it. It's whatever corn we don't consume today in order to plow into the fields tomorrow. But when we have anything from computers to steam engines or to, um, you know, oil uh, as uh, capital goods, um, then it is impossible to, to, to bring them together into one measure, one metric of capital. So what he says is, okay, we have a problem measuring capital, we won't measure capital. We will measure wealth.
1: His model precludes policy dis, uh, decisions of, uh, let's say, governmental interference. So again, like you said, we have a concept that feels good, sounds good, but we have no opera, operative way of dealing with it. So everyone's going to look at this. We're all feeling good about it. We, Janet Yellen, uh, the Fed governor, she's discovered that there's a lot of inequality going on, it's everyone's making this official and there we have it, but nobody is doing anything about it.
2: Well, in a sense, in a sense, that's quite right, in a sense, the moment you conflate capital and wealth in order to make your model work, to make the mathematics work, um, you become irrelevant from a policy point of view. And you become irrelevant because you cannot distinguish anymore between a robotic assembly line um, a portfolio of bonds or shares or indeed your grandmother's silverware in the cupboard. Okay. So whether there is productive ca- a productive asset or not makes no difference. So if if, if you don't like the, the distribution of wealth, if you've already used the neoclassical model which has banned bargaining from the picture, it's taking it out. So there's no bargain between capital and labor, between different... Or, or, um, uh, departments of state, between buyers and sellers, then what is left, you are only left with the distribution of wealth. And if you don't like this distribution of wealth, because it's too unequal, which it is, then because you've lost all other… Um, Policy search, levers, really. All other levers, the only, the only conclusion you can come up with is redistribute wealth, which is, you know, and how do you redistribute wealth? Through taxing wealth. Now, I don't have a problem with taxing wealth, but it depends on what wealth. Do we really want to tax our grandmother's silverware? What if our grandmother has absolutely no income? No what income you, exactly. exactly. You force her to sell the silverware to give you 20% of it. Um, wh- wh- what do you do with an investor who has actually invested in productive capacity that is c- creating jobs? Do you, do, you, do you actually tax the machinery? Uh, that's a, t- a tax on investment. Uh, or, uh, I'm all in favor of taxing, um, you know, the mansions of the bankers uh, wherever they, they happen to or be. Or their
1: portfolio of derivatives. Which, we do. Uh...
2: But if you have no, theory, if you've banned from yourself, yourself, from making a distinction between a portfolio of assets and a robotic plant or your grandmother's silverware, You're left in no man's land, policy-wise. But that doesn't concern Mr. Piketty, because Mr. Piketty is not interested in changing the world and making it a better place. He's interested in becoming the guru of inequality and for creating a link between the mainstream of the economics profession with the social sentiment that there is something wrong with inequality, as long as that link does not result in policies that actually do something about inequality. This is why I was saying that he's a great enemy in the end of pragmatic egalitarianism.
1: Well, he has he has formed a group of 30 like-minded economists who are going to get together and ring, hand-ring about this problem, and hopefully uh, Impact institutions in some way uh, to induce change, but his model doesn't prescribe that. But that's apparently his stated objective to uh, form these committees. I mean, because essentially his other than his taxing, his prescription doesn't allow for intervention in government uh, policies, or at least he hasn't specified.
2: Look, I, I wish them well, and I hope they change the world in, in a positive way. I don't know anything about this group, but I do know about another Piketty group. You may have noticed that in France, where Professor Piketty teaches and works and lives, he has formed a group of some like 15, 14 economists. It's called the Piketty group. And the, the Piketty group is not, the French Piketty group, uh, is, is not geared towards doing something about inequality. They are remit is to do something about the collapsing European Union and in particular the Eurozone and the euro currency. So they have published a manifesto, which is called the Piketty Group Manifesto, on what to do with Europe. I'm mentioning this because let's face it, you know, you one gains insights from looking at these parallel political projects. If you look at this uh, manifesto, actually reads just like his book, beautifully, and you think you know, it's full of good sentiments about Europeans at last uh, doing something about Europe and uniting as opposed to allowing the Euro crisis to fragment the European Union until it leads to its collapse.
1: But it doesn't devolve from his book, that kind of approach. It's not even signal. Uh, so he's really shifted tenses here. There's nothing from his, his book that would enable him or force him to become an institutional intervener. Uh, regardless of whether it's austere or not. I mean, where does he come from?
2: Look, I suppose there's is, there is something that you could... His, his answer to this would be that his book leads to the safe conclusion that unless there is a, a redistribution of wealth, then democracy is imperiled. But he's not he's not proposing that. You know what he reminds me of? This is, this is not a new story. He reminds me of a very interesting de- debate in the early 70s, which, of course, everybody remembers very well, and I'm sure you do between, at the level of political philosophy, between uh, John Rawls and libertarian Robert Nozick. I think that, I would, I would say this, Thomas, Thomas Piketty is a second-rate version of John Rawls. John Rawls was a philosopher, so he was a bit smarter and more cultivated. Uh, but in the end, what if you recall, The Theory of Justice, which was a great book John Rawls published in 1971, um, made a very simple point: that if we all had the opportunity of passing judgment of, on on our society behind the veil of ignorance, without knowing what role we would play in that society, without knowing whether we would be black, white, man, men, women, rich, poor, um, disabled or able-bodied, what kind of society would we choose? Would it be the society we live in? And he answers: his answer is, of course not, because you know, if you are rich and you think, okay, what, my my my. He, he, my chances of of remaining rich in this society are very tiny because the rich people are very few (laughs) compared to the poor people. So if some machine were to randomize and put me in some social role or body um, at random, then uh, I I would want to go back to the society in which I am currently rich. So it it was a mechanism that John Rawls recommended to us for passing judgment on the justice of our society. And, and and there was a policy implication there at the end, because he, his theoretical model led to the conclusion that we should want to maximize the, the welfare of the, of, of, of the least well-off person. That's the minimax rule of John Rawls. So he he came up with a pretty radical agenda for using the tax system in order to keep redistributing from the haves to the have-nots until the have-nots are reach a certain level, such that if you redistribute further, then their own level is going to suffer because the efficiency of the capitalist system is going to to be diminished. And then, remember that what Robert Nozick did. He destroyed John Rawls in his 1974 book, Anarchy, State and Utopia, by asking a simple question. A simple question. He said, okay, Mr. Rawls, let's agree with you. We should do what you're saying. And that, you know, we are now in a situation where we have optimal justice and the best possible distribution of income according to your own scheme, right? Now, what happens if one of us develops wonderful skills at basketball, let's say? That's the example he used, right? And suddenly everybody wants to pay him money to watch him play basketball. We have a, 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 a choice between two courses of action here. One is to ban people from paying the basketballer because allowing them to do it would skew the distribution, would... Certainly, it wouldn't be optimal anymore. Or secondly, to allow them to do it, in which case we agree that that distribution was not optimal. So he destroyed the simple point he made. By the way, it's a point that Marx had made a century before, right? was that what matters is not so much the outcome, it's the process. If the process is just, then we're OK. Then if you have inequality in the end, who cares? But if the process is unjust, okay, so where I disagree with Nozick and the libertarians is that they assume that the market process, if, if, if it's n- there's no interference from government, is by necessity good and proper. I disagree with that. Okay? But he was right that what matters is process. Now, Rawls had a static view which could be destroyed by the libertarians. And what has happened since the 1970s, and I hope we agree with this, is that this kind of social democratic in American liberal, small liberal view of the world, of John Rawls, has been destroyed by the libertarians. We've saying, "Who are you to impose upon us a particular distribution which you think of income or wealth, which we, you think is is optimal or just?" Let you know the process determine that. And 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 my great fear is that Piketty is setting himself up as a new John Rawls, less sophisticated, who is going to be completely destroyed by a libertarian who comes and says this is all rubbish. Your distribution of wealth, firstly, doesn't reflect the real distribution of wealth because you're conflating wealth and capital and all that. And secondly, um, exactly like Nozick asked the question, talk about the process. What have you got to say about the process? Because he has nothing to say about the process.
1: He has nothing to say about it. And in effect, he'll destroy... By getting hammered that way, he'll destroy any progressive action from being taken.
2: So anybody who, who, who subscribes to Piketty for the purposes of egalitarianism is in the end creating an opening for a libertarian to come in and destroy egalitarianism.
1: Well, I think, Giannis,
0: that's a good point to end this interview.
2: Thanks very so much. I enjoyed it.
0: And that's it for this week's episode of Smart Talk. Thank you for listening, and we hope it made you think. If you'd like to learn more about our research, check out hgsss.org. That's hgsss.org. If you'd like to listen to our content as soon as it's published, subscribe to our show. If you like our show, please leave us a rating, review, or even share it with a friend. It goes a long way. Thanks again for listening, and see you next week.